In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, on this beautiful day, Valentine's Day, and also Ash Wednesday, which seems to be miles apart in emphasis and appearance, etc., but there is a connection. Help us to see that connection as we move through the chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be working on two main subjects, but in many ways they reflect uh, the day of Valentine's Day. So we ask your blessing in our efforts, and we ask that you help us to really open our mind and heart to see what it is that you want us to see and hear. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. In some ways it is appropriate, and I'd like to just bring out, and if any of you have been to St. Rose, you'll know that I'm sort of copying the uh, homily that Father gave this morning over there, but... Uh, and I'm saying that only because I don't want anybody to think I, I'm so original here. But <laughs> The whole idea of Jesus and the miracles, and that's the subject I really want to cover first. I did this little handout here to help us focus in on the important parts of each of these miracles. And we'll kind of take them uh, sort of as a group rather than getting into each, each one individually. But again, we almost have to look at each one individually because there is a different reaction in each one and there's a different emphasis on each one. But when you sit back and look at it, you think about, well, none of these people were very important. Uh, yes, the centurion, but he was a Roman, so they wouldn't, the Jewish people wouldn't count him as being important. Yeah, he had a responsibility and he had power and all of that, but to the Jewish people, and remember, Matthew's gospel is sort of focused on the Jewish people. He is trying to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the role of Moses in leading the people into the new promised land, which of course, as we know, is heaven. But there's a number of elements in here that we have to look at because not everybody will accept a miracle in the same way. And I think Jesus intended it that way. The man with leprosy approaches Jesus in homage and asks for healing. Lord, if you can, if you wish, you can make me clean. And in one of the older versions of the Bible, it says, Lord, if you can, and Jesus, I can, do you doubt? So Jesus touches the man and heals and says, I will do it, then cautions him not to tell anyone. 
but go show yourself to the priest. Well, you know, that's like winning the lottery and then trying to keep quiet about it. <laughs> that would be almost impossible for the human person, any human being, to keep quiet about winning, you know, millions of dollars. Um, so, so the man is so grateful that he can't stop talking about what God has done for him. Why, why would Jesus ask him not to talk about it? And you'll see this in many of the miracles. And even in the transfiguration, uh, the story of the transfiguration, it ends by the apostles, Jesus and the apostles, coming down from the mountain and Jesus telling them, the apostles, uh, not to talk about it until after the uh, resurrection. And why do you suppose that is? Yes, that's exactly the point. Uh, he wasn't here just to demonstrate his power. It was the message of what is behind all of that that was important. And the more his fame and notoriety and so forth or whatever uh, got spread around, the more he would be practically covered with people uh, trying to get something from him. And that's not what he was here for. Jesus' miracles were really an expression of his compassion, his understanding of humanity. He was also part of the reason that he came to teach. And the miracles were a sign of his power and his authority to say and do the things that he did. But what kind of people did he heal? Uh, <clears throat> Lepers, you know, they were castouts. Leprosy was a very highly contagious disease at that time. It is not any longer because it can be controlled now. Uh, and it isn't called leprosy. What is it called today? Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease, yes. Uh, and it can be controlled with medication. Uh, but nevertheless, it is still a con very contagious disease. And at that time, people were cast out. Remember, people with any form of disease or uh, deformity or some other affliction was always considered around the time of Christ as being great sinners and being punished by God. Well, Jesus tried to change that by getting them to see that that wasn't the case. Uh, there was other reasons for misfortune of any kind, but certainly it didn't uh, necessarily apply to being a great sinner. Uh, the next miracle that is listed here is the Roman centurion. Well, he was a cast out also because he was a Roman, first of all, and he was in charge of a hundred men. That's the indication of being a centurion um, and he told people what to do and they snapped to it and did it uh, so he wasn't particularly liked by 
the Jewish people either. Um, but Jesus is not concerned with a person's political background or occupation or other interests. He's interested in their faith and their trust in God. The cure of Peter's mother-in-law, there wasn't anything, at least in uh, the writings of the Bible, where Peter even asked for uh, Jesus to cure his mother-in-law. Jesus saw this in advance just by coming into the house, and he took uh, the initiative to do it on his own. Uh, and, of course, you had a lot of people poo-pooing the thing because uh, they practically had her dead and buried uh, when she wasn't, and she got up and started waiting on Jesus as if nothing had happened. Then there's multiple healings where Jesus can heal several people uh, at one time simply by saying so. Remember, he was God, and he controlled all the elements of creation, and therefore this was not anything different for him, and he's demonstrated it several times where he would heal somebody, and then, or, or he would precede healing the person by saying, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would say, oh, well, only God can do that, which, of course, is a true statement, but they wouldn't accept Jesus as being God. And yet, when you put the two together, Jesus had every right to forgive sins if he saw that the person was sorry for whatever sins they had committed. And then he said in a couple places, what is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say be healed, arise and walk for one case, and another healed a deformed hand. Um, he used the miracles to support his authority to forgive sin. He used the miracles to support things that were far more important, the teaching of people, trying to get them to understand. Remember, even though Moses started out by giving the people a lot of direction that was dictated by God himself, Moses was inspired by God to tell the people how to start the idea of a Jewish nation. Although it had been started by Abraham, remember the 500 years between Abraham and Moses, there was no writings whatsoever. There was no formity. There was no structure. There were no leaders outside of uh, Abraham and his family, primarily Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes. So, by the time of Moses, God had a group of people, a family, a nation that was established and dedicated to him. So then, through uh, Moses, God gives the Ten Commandments to all mankind and other rules and regulations, many of which, including the dietary uh, laws or rules, were not intended to be uh, 
holy scripture. They were something that was really intended to be common sense hygiene, particularly when they were in the desert for 40 years. Can you imagine a large number of people moving through the desert over a period of time and the problems of hygiene, the problems of uh, finding sufficient food, so finding, finding sufficient water. Uh, so most of the dietary laws and the hygiene laws were just plain common sense that had to be uh, addressed and, and taken seriously for health purposes more than anything else. But over a period of time, they became part of the Jewish scriptures and part of the way of honoring God. But it became more important than God in many ways, and this is not what God wanted. So when Jesus comes along, he's trying to change a lot of these things. And that's where he runs into a great deal of opposition. That isn't the only reason, of course, but again, when St. Paul gets around to the saying that you don't have to observe all the rules and regulations of the Mosaic Law, but you have to observe the idea of honoring God and loving your neighbor, that is where they both got into a lot of trouble. All right, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so fixed in worshiping the law that they forgot really about what was it really all about. And so that is what Jesus was trying to tell the people. And that is what we are trying to look at now. What is our faith all about? And it's not going to church on Sunday. It's not following Latin rules and regulations. If that is all you're doing, then you're barking or moving down the wrong road. Okay. It's the idea of what's in the mind and the heart. That's important. Discipleship or the following of Christ doesn't begin by <coughs> saying the rosary or going to Mass on Sunday or doing anything, you know, receiving ashes on your forehead. It has to have something behind that that you are really trying to develop and that should be developing a close relationship with Jesus Christ or God through Christ. All right. So that's what the miracles are really trying to, to tell us. That God has the power. Jesus has the power because he is God. And he has the power to say and do what he did. But we should not just look at those famous events and the great things that he did, but look at why did he do it? What was the reason behind? And so many of us forget that. So let's go through a little bit more of these uh, examples here. 
the multiple healings of people possessed and others uh, with undescribed illnesses. Uh, possession was a very questionable thing, and I use that word questionable because we have no way of knowing how many of these cases that uh, demons uh, are mentioned are really demons or are they just serious illnesses of either mental or physical kind that the people had no knowledge of. Uh, for example, what about epilepsy or um, the one the one I'm thinking of, um, Parkinson's, uh, you know, Parkinson's. These are diseases that affect the nervous system, which in turn are demonstrated uh, by twitches and, uh, you know, shaky hands or legs or whatever. But that doesn't affect the mind and the heart. It affects the nervous system, yes but it doesn't affect the mind and the heart. Um, but the people at Jesus' time did not understand that. And so they felt that anybody with those kinds of diseases were automatically uh, possessed. But possession was also a common uh, situation because, remember, Jesus had not been born, raised, and died for our benefit and given us the Holy Spirit. So there was a lot of opportunity for the devil or evil spirits to take over. And Jesus heals all of these that were presented to him. The, the most unusual one, of course, was where he was in the town of Gadara, which is not in Jewish territory. Uh, and that's surprising in a way because uh, most people feel that Jesus never taught or went outside of Jewish territory. But remember, the east side of the Jordan River, which is now either the country of Jordan or if you're in the north, the country of Syria, was part of Israel at that time. The borders were kind of uh, fuzzy and not overly uh, demonstrated in many ways. There was no uh, border walls in those days. Uh, if Trump was living, they probably would have, you know. <laughs> so the eastern uh, shores or the eastern side of the Jordan was foreign territory, and Jesus encounters uh, a man with a severe case of possession. And Jesus asks him what his name is, and he says his name was Legion, which of course we refer or think about Legion as being a multitude of people, and he said that's true. There were many people within him being possessed. And so Jesus uh, is asked to relieve the man of that particular uh, problem and 
there is a herd of swine, well, a herd of pigs. Well, obviously, this is a sign that it is not Jewish territory because they wouldn't be uh, having pigs or raising them, you know, in that particular area. But Jesus is not concerned with that, nor with the nationality of the individual. The man asks for forgiveness and relief of possession, and Jesus gives it to him and takes the legions of evil spirits that are in this person and sends them into the swine or the pigs who then are uh, herded into the sea and drowned. What a sad case for a lot of bacon. Anyways, uh, <laughs> well, you got to be a little careful because it says, you know, a couple hundred pigs or something like that. Uh, in all of Jewish writings and all of the writings of that time period, not only the Jews, but others, numbers were not important. Uh, and the greater the number... Uh, the more effect they thought they were going to get. But they, you know, forgot about being uh, unrealistic. 200 pigs would have required a tremendous amount of attention and food. And that probably was not the case. So I would say 200 was uh, a tremendous exaggeration. In the Old Testament, uh, there are a number of cases where numbers are used to emphasize. And you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt because most of the time, most numbers could not be, su be supported in any way. But that's really not important for our point today. It's, there, there's, uh, I can't answer that, really. Um, and there is no there is no answer to that given. I've looked that up many times in the past, and there's just no answer given. But that raises a question. You know, why spoil uh, the livelihood of some farmer or someone? Uh, and there is no way to answer that. I'm sorry. I just can't. Because, uh, like I said, I've looked that up to find out why. I've thought about that myself. Uh, it's an unfortunate uh, situation, but I, I feel that there was probably not that many in the first place. Um, again, the Jewish people in their writing like to exaggerate, particularly when it comes to numbers. In fact, that's why a book of the Old Testament, part of the Torah, is called the Book of Numbers, because they've always been fascinated with the numbers of things. Uh, Solomon. Solomon was severely reprimanded by God because he was so proud of what he did that he wanted uh, a census taken. And the number of 
soldiers counted and the number of loyal citizens counted. And God reprimanded him because he said the only reason you're doing that is for your own pride. And Solomon lost a lot of uh, brownie points over that. Okay. Uh, the healing of an official's daughter and the woman with a hemorrhage is an interesting uh, situation. You have, um, there's a special name for the, the way that's presented with one woman, no, with a, uh, an official coming to Jesus and ask uh, that he come to his home to heal the daughter. And in the midst of that, another woman comes up behind Jesus, and because of the crowd, she can't get too close, but she's able to touch his garments and be healed of uh, a hemorrhage that has bothered her for many years. And Jesus then asks, who is that that touched me? Well, of course, the apostles are kind of aghast because with so many people around, how could he ask that? And then they question it because they know he would know that anyways. Uh, the point really is the personal identity, the personal touch of God uh, through prayer is something that is uh, trying to be developed here. And then uh, after that incident of healing the woman with the hemorrhage, then Jesus does go on to the official's house and heals the daughter. So you have kind of a, an odd situation, but it's important really for us to understand that Jesus is not concerned with the status uh, or the education or the age uh, of the individual. What he's trying to do is to get the attention of the people involved. The healing of two blind men is another case. Uh, two blind men, this of course is where they get the statement of the blind leading the blind. Uh, uh, Jesus questions them first of all to see if their faith is really strong or are they just after uh, the healing and not concerned. And of course, it is their faith that saves them and Jesus does heal them. Sometimes it takes a miracle to bring out the faith and the trust that is there, but the individual isn't always aware of it. Okay. The healing of a mute person. Uh, this is a case where uh, a person who is unable to speak for whatever reason, uh, physical, spiritual, mental, whatever, uh, they, the people at Jesus' time, would have classed this, classified this person as being uh, having a evil spirit within him. And Jesus is able to, to heal the individual. I don't want to belabor all of this because I'm sure 
most of you are aware of it, uh, the whole idea of miracles is to show the compassion of God through Jesus Christ. The compassion and the understanding of God in our afflictions, in our troubles, and in our request for others. Not only is it in, um, a case of healing something that I might want or I might need or whatever for me, but it would be the same for all of us when we go to Jesus uh, or go to God through Jesus asking for help or some kind of uh, help for another person. All right. Uh, I think it's important to understand that Jesus is full of compassion for his creation. You had a question? Uh, a comment. Uh, the centurion, I think, is also another meaning to it, along with the um, Sumerian woman. I forgot the series. He is saying, I'm not here just for the Jews. I'm here for everybody. Oh, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, yes, he, of course, that's important for us to understand that Jesus was not there for the Jews. But, yeah, I gotta, I gotta qualify that, you might say, because remember when they first start out, and we'll see this here in the next section where we get into the mission. He tells his uh, apostles not to go in to other territories, but to stay within uh, the borders of Israel. And that is because, uh, again, going back to Moses, he promised that the word and redemption would come through the Jewish people. Um, but ultimately, his intention was to open the door to everyone. Yes. And this is a sign of that. He wasn't concerned with the Roman soldier uh, or anyone else, really. He wasn't concerned with the political background of any kind or nationality. That wasn't important to him and still isn't important uh, to God and himself. Any questions so far? Yes? Yes. Well, well, I think, I think, Chet, that we have to look at it is that they were afraid of him. They had no faith in Jesus. Remember, they were in non-Jewish territory. So they didn't have the same background, the same understanding of who God was or is. 
And so they were afraid of him. They thought perhaps he was a demon himself. You see, casting out other demons. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Good point, though. Yes, honey? Do you think uh, people today even are afraid? In some ways, yes. Yes. Because uh, I have family says, how can you believe when you can't see or nothing? I says, your faith. That's right. That's what faith is all about. Is. Yeah. But I know I heard uh, one person say to me that they were very much afraid of praying because they were afraid that God would ask them to do something that they didn't want to do. Oh. Uh, that's a poor excuse. Well, that's true, but many people, you know, they don't want to change. Yeah. And that's part of discipleship. Connie? It was, Father Casey, I remember that, I remember that year, and this was way back when Father McEwen first came to the parish. Father Casey is a Franciscan priest who is uh, extremely well-educated, well thought of in certain circles, and almost the opposite in other circles. So I can understand what you're saying. I can't verify, you know, who was right and who wasn't. Uh, but he has that reputation of bringing out the good in some people and the not so good in others. Uh, so that is a possibility that you were experiencing. You know, somebody who was trying to say that what Father Casey was saying was not right. And that probably was not the case. Because I just read this book and I was, uh, I read it again because I've had it for many years. In fact, it was, no, no, this, No, this is not the, uh, well, that's just another subject. Let's leave that go. But the height, the idea of demons affecting people even today is very real. So we must not uh, dismiss, dismiss that in the least. But I do remember the incident and the individual. Yeah. Involved. Yeah. Any other questions? I'm sorry, Connie, that I couldn't, you know, give you a, a better explanation. Let's let's go on to the other side of the page here, because, and I apologize for not telling you last week uh, to read chapter ten. Uh, but then I do hope you do read a little bit ahead of the assigned uh, work because you know what we'll be getting into. But the in between several of the miracle stories, 
are incidences of other transactions in the life of Jesus. And I want to bring some of that out because the whole idea is that uh, Jesus had a great purpose in coming to earth in the first place. Remember, God created all mankind and set them on this beautiful earth that he prepared for all mankind. And we were the product of his love. But because we were not perfect, God cannot make something that is perfect because only God is perfect. He can bring us to perfection as far as is possible for a human being, but we are not perfect in the same way God is perfect. (coughs) But there was a purpose in Jesus coming to earth in the first place. And of course, that was to be the focal point of God's plan of salvation. Once mankind sinned, then that separated God from human beings to a point where they could not be reunited until proper satisfaction had to be made. I think this is all pretty much uh, given to you in, in that original circular diagram that you received in the uh, first handout. You know, this one here. And on the back of that is somewhat of an explanation. Uh, But I want to go further than that. And some of the comments here made in chapters uh, 8 through 10 show that Jesus had a specific mission. In uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 20, he has a couple would-be disciples wanting to know a little bit more about him. And so they come up to him and they say, Jesus, where are you staying? And he answers by saying to them, come and see. And then they go to wherever he is staying for the night. But Jesus answers that with a rather um, peculiar quotation. He says, the foxes have dens, and the birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, you know, if you just think about it, that's kind of a weird statement to say to two strangers coming up to you and saying, where do you stay? The point is that Jesus, knowing that these two men are Jewish, they have a lot of faith in God, they just are a little misguided for the time being, and he quotes from Psalm 84, which is a whole psalm dedicated to the dedicated to where God lives. All right. Now, remember the people at this particular time period, 
and for centuries before, thought that God lived in the temple, but no place else, that that was his home, and he wasn't everywhere else. Jesus is trying to change that. If you go to Psalm 84, listen to this in a way, in relationship to what the two men said, all right? Psalm 84 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. <laughs> Excuse me. My soul yearns and pines for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. As the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for her young. That's what he quoted from. My home is by your altars, Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Happy are those who dwell in your house. <coughs> They never cease to praise you. <coughs> I'm sorry. What Jesus is really trying to say is that God has no fixed spot where he is. He is all over. Everywhere. Of course, the men were referring to where does Jesus, the human being, stay when he's in the town. So he says, come and see, and they do come, and they stay with him that night. But the whole idea is Jesus is trying to get across the fact that Jesus and God are not confined to one place. They are all over. They are part of everything. I think I've told you this before. When we were kids in elementary school, the nuns used to say, Jesus is all over and he's in everything. In fact, he's even under this desk. We'd all go and look <laughs> to see if he was under there. <laughs> but it is the point that uh, I think is very important in the context of what we're talking about. Jesus' mission. All right. The next segment of or the passage here from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 23 through 27, is the calming of the sea. All right. It says, This is an example of Jesus taking care of the disciples. It is up to us to have faith to follow. In other words, thank you, dear. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Um, <laughs> it's it's just allergies now. It's not a cold. So it's uh, but excuse me. The point here in this case of calming of the sea, again, Jesus is quoting or doing something that is known to these men. Um, and that's Psalm 148. Verse 8. 148. Now, the previous one that I mentioned was 
Psalm 84. This one now is 148. And there's uh, a line that is right in there that I think is important. Remember, Jesus rebukes the wind and the storm settles down. And then these men are so in awe because they can't fathom somebody like Jesus, who they look at as just a man, being able to control the storm, the sea and the wind, etc., etc. But if you go to verse 8, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, verse 8. This is Psalm 148, verse 8. and says, again, you lightning and hail, snow and clouds, storm winds that fulfill his command. Okay? So Jesus is fulfilling that particular passage. The point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus' mission was, among other things, to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And in another place, he says, I have not come to condemn the prophets or the law. I have come to fulfill it. And time after time after time, he has shown where he is fulfilling various points of the Old Testament, or he's changing certain points of the Old Testament and the Jewish law or the Torah. The call of Matthew seems to be out of place in a way, uh, because we've talked about the apostles being called out of uh, the multitude of disciples. The apostles are now being called to a, a higher level and a more specific job within the teachings of Christ. And so this particular passage here seems to be a little out of place, but not so. It is more to show that Jesus is sharing his mission with others and ultimately with you and me. That we cannot just say, well, gee, God is up there and he's doing his job and I can sit back and, you know, take it easy. Uh-uh. To be a true disciple of Christ, you have to be willing to share his role. And what is his role? Not only to teach and preach and heal, but to live and die for the cause. And if called upon, that is what we are expected to do too. Now, a lot of people say, well, gee, I don't want to go that far. I mean, I'm, I'm not equipped to it. I've got this problem. I've got a family, etc., etc." Don't worry about it. Jesus knows that just as well. And there is something that every one of us can do. 
even when you get into old age, like I feel I am right now, um, you can still do something. Even if it is just offer of a rosary or some prayers for a specific cause uh, in the comfort of your home. But it's important that you understand that you cannot set aside Christ and <clears throat> sit back and just, uh, you know, be a comfortable spectator. Jesus and the compassionate shepherd. After talking to a number of people for quite a while, he has compassion because they have nothing to eat, but more so because they do not have proper guidance. Remember, the temple of Jerusalem, the main temple of all of Jewish uh, life at that time, was destroyed in the year 70 AD, not because yeah, the Romans didn't like it, but God allowed it to be destroyed because it was not being used properly. It was not being used solely as a house of prayer, study, and worship. It was being used as a way of showing how great certain part or certain numbers of Jewish leaders were. And, you know, enhancing their particular uh, person or their particular uh, responsibility or their particular job. It was not being used to uh, honor Christ or God through Christ. And so God allowed it to be destroyed. And the reason we know that or, or feel that that's a certain understanding is because <clears throat> at the time it was destroyed, uh, or even before, at the time of Christ's passion and death on Good Friday, the veil of the temple was torn, but it was torn from top to bottom. Now, if you think of it, if a human being did that uh, for whatever reason, he would have to start at the bottom because it was 18 feet high. 15 cubits, right? And, of course, the reading is on Good Friday uh, that it was torn from top to bottom, which means God tore it this way from above, tore it down, all right, to indicate that he was no longer part of the Jewish temple, that he lived among all of us who had faith in him and accepted him as Lord and Savior. So there are many things that Jesus did to indicate his particular role in God's plan of salvation. And of course, the ultimate was death on the cross. Now, how do we know that God accepted that? That is what the resurrection is all about. It's an indication that God accepted 
the offering that Christ did on our behalf. Remember, Jesus became a human being like us to take upon his back, his body, the sins of all mankind. And a lot of people have asked me in the past, well, why? Why did he choose that particular way of doing things? Well, you have to think back. <clears throat> he was living under Jewish rule, Jewish laws, and Jewish customs. And whenever a serious sacrifice had to be offered, there had to be blood. There had to be a consuming of a meal containing the product of that blood. That was what the Passover meal was all about. And that was in process for 2,000 years from the time of uh, Moses. Well, that wouldn't have been 2,000 years. It would have been 1,500 years approximately. All right. <clears throat> the first Passover was the idea of consuming the product of blood that had been shed. So the Passover lamb was shed and the blood was posted on the doorpost to indicate a Jewish household of faith. Anyone that refused to do that, and in the movie, The Ten Commandments, there's an interesting uh, segment where the character being played by Edward G. Robinson didn't want any blood put on his doorpost because he had a very beautiful home. He was like a tax collector and uh, he had some pull with the, the Romans and he didn't want that blood on his doorpost. Well, it's interesting how he got swept up uh, with the Romans and the Jewish people who stayed behind and so he never went with those who left with Moses. <coughs> I've gotten a little bit of lost in my trend of thought here. The thing that we have to gain from all of this is that we have a role in God's plan of salvation. We, if we are the true disciple of Christ, we cannot just sit back and be comfortable in our homes and do nothing. Even going to Mass on Sunday, some people go only because it's the right thing to do, or they've always done it, or their spouse sort of drags them to it, whatever the case. But they don't go for the true reason Mere purpose, uh, sorry, <clears throat> mere presence in church on Sunday doesn't mean that you really went to Mass. You have to partake consciously of what's going on. So just mere presence is not sufficient. God wants you to be part of it, to put yourself on the altar as if you yourself were performing that Mass. Okay. Not, you know, don't worry about uh, 
the, the male or the female role or whatever that's immaterial. But Jesus tells us this in a couple of places. The one in Matthew chapter 10, but also the more important one, if you go right to the end of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, it talks about all disciples going out to baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and baptizing with water. It includes those of us who don't have the authority to baptize, but we have the requirement and the authority to do a lot of other things. Help the poor and take uh, care of the sick. Uh, do so many things that don't require a great deal of education, you know, formal education. <clears throat> Not many of us are theologians of any kind or great Bible scholars. That's not important. You can all do something. And in chapter 10, verses 16 to 39, we have the cost of discipleship. Yes, there is going to be a cost. There is going to be ridicule. There's going to be uh, people who will not uh, accept what you're trying to do for them. People will misunderstand. You'll experience all of that. I know I've been through it. Teaching for almost 40 years, I've been through it, uh, and I understand. <laughs> but that's beside the point. The relationship that is developed with God through the works that you do, through your prayers and your belief, brings a great deal of peace. Not necessarily comfort, not ne certainly not riches, but peace, <clears throat> which is most important. When you feel comfortable with yourself and what you're doing in the eyes of God, it is the most amazing peace that you can possibly experience. <clears throat> Now, the last part of this is the rewards of discipleship. And there are many. But I think if you think back to the Beatitudes, and that is why the Beatitudes were placed up front as sort of the carrot and the stick arrangement. But really, it is after you understand the true role of a disciple can you possibly understand the rewards of all that has been done. Any questions? Yes, in a way. No. Well, I can't get down to that specifics, but first of all, let me voice your question. Bob just asked, is there any way that we know of 
how Jesus selected the 12 apostles. If you think back that before he selected the apostles, he spent 40 days in the desert praying. And most people feel that that is exactly what he was doing, is asking the Holy Spirit for guidance and direction as to how to proceed. And being given the direction of selecting 12 apostles. Now, he probably wasn't given a list with names on it, uh, but he was given the assurance that when he would select that they would be the right people, that God, through the Holy Spirit, would indicate where the chosen ones to be the apostles. Uh, how do we account for the different names? Uh, because, as we've said before, uh, Matthew had two names, Matthew and Levi, Simon, Peter. Uh, well, that and we know Christ himself changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter. Uh, there were a couple others that had names in one book that were slightly different in another, Bartholomew and Thaddeus. Uh, so, hmm? Nathaniel, yeah, and then Thaddeus and someone else. Uh, we don't really know. The only thing that I can think of is in most cases, one name was Jewish, such as Levi. The other name was Greek. Yeah. Greek of the, the equivalent of whatever the Jewish was. But that's, that's the best I can give you, Bob. There are no specifics. Yes, ma'am? Yes. Yes. Was that the end of animal sacrifices for the Jewish people? No, not not then, but it was the beginning of the end, you might say. The end was actually in the year seventy AD when the temple building was destroyed. Yeah. Not only was the temple building destroyed, but Judaism as it was at that time, was pretty much destroyed also. And after that, there was no formal structure ever developed that they all agreed upon. In the second, well, towards the end of the second century AD, they tried to resurrect it in some formal way, but you couldn't get everybody to agree, and that fell apart. The Talmud wasn't uh, developed in a written form as we have it today until about the 6th century. So Judaism has no form uh, comparable to the Catholic Church and no head whatsoever. A person can be ordained as a rabbi and he's solely on his own. I'm sorry? Wasn't the priest class murdered by the Romans at that time? Uh, most of them were, yes. Most of the Sanhedrin uh, 
was yeah, destroyed one way or the other in the year 70 AD, though, uh, or before. Yeah. Yes, Dick. I had a parallel question to the one previous. You said that the veil was torn as a symbol that God had left the temple. Does that indicate then maybe that for the next 40 years until it was destroyed that he wasn't with the Jews in the temple anymore? Right. After that, it was Christianity. But they, the Jews never realized that he had left. No, and they still don't. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, because, <clears throat> you know, the Jewish mosque is on, I mean, the, excuse me, is Islamic mosque is on the site of where the Jewish temple was. The only thing that still remains uh, is the Western Wall, which is part of the foundation. But that's the foundation of the temple that uh, was built under Solomon, not under uh, Herod. You know, remember Herod the Great rebuilt the temple, but it was built on the same ground. And then in 70 AD, uh, the temple was destroyed, and it wasn't until about the 6th century that the uh, Turks, uh, not the Turks, but the uh, Islamic people overran that country and built their mosque on it, which still stands. Yeah. Yes. The uh, first Christians uh, were called uh, in Antioch, right? The followers of Christ. The Christians were first called Christians in Antioch by Irenaeus, yes. Do we know approximately what, what year was that? It was in the early part of the second century. We don't know down to the exact year, but somewhere around uh, the year 125 or so. Uh, but don't hold me to it, that specific year. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, uh, well, you know, I could go on and on because the whole subject <clears throat> of discipleship is interesting to me because I've followed it as closely as possible for many, many years. Uh, and it's not easy. But like I said, when you do so, you can go to sleep at night and really feel at peace. And that's what it's really all about. Uh, because God never promised us a rose garden, as the Beatles song goes. Uh, but he did promise peace. And that's so important. Any other questions? Well, I hope that you won't. Yes, Julie. Um, I'm going. I'm looking it into, you know, chapter eleven, which is where we start, and I have some of it highlighted, which means we discussed it. And I'm going back through my notes. Well, not chapter eleven. Chapter chapter Matthew chapter eleven, and I'm going back through my notes, and it looks to me like when we talked about John the Baptist. We went into oh, chapter yes, Would yes. that be correct? Yes, we did pick out various parts from all over the 
New Testament about John the Baptist so that when we come to that again or in that area, we won't have to get and explain that. But I know that even though that's what we said, it'll come up again. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out why I've got highlights in here. Well, that's because we did talk about it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Back in the second meeting, uh, we talked about John the Baptist. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Let us end with prayer then. Name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you help us to continue to develop our understanding and acceptance of the role of disciples. Because we know that in the long run, it is only those who have put their faith and trust in you and have followed you through the dark roads to heaven that will actually get there. So we ask you to help us to have the strength, the grace, to persevere in our desire to follow you. And knowing that you are not just in the church, that you are all over, <coughs> leading us when we're in the car driving down the freeway or at the grocery store or at work or just at home with the children, whatever. We know that you are there. So we ask that you help us to constantly be aware of that. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.